I'm Kristen Holmes, and this is Election 101. We're helping you prepare for this critical election by answering your questions about how American democracy actually works. This week, polling. Just for a second, let's go back in time to 2016. Hillary Clinton is enjoying a wave of strong poll numbers with the election less than 16 days away. And it shows Donald Trump trailing Hillary Clinton by 10 points. Hillary Clinton now beats Donald Trump in two new polls. I was covering the presidential campaign, and like everybody else, I was watching the poll numbers. But I was also at a lot of Trump campaign rallies. You had to see the crowd we had in Pennsylvania, the crowd we had in Ohio and Iowa. I've had the biggest crowds. They never say how big the crowds are. Who likes me in this room? There was so much energy at the Trump rallies. What I was seeing on the ground just didn't track with what the polls were saying. And I kept talking to all these veteran political reporters who'd been doing this a long time, saying that I really thought that Trump could win. But over and over again, I heard the same thing. No way, we've done the math, can't happen. Just look at the polls. But election day, it proved the polls wrong. What did everybody get wrong? I mean, the polls were just wrong. Take a a quick pause here and talk about the polling failures. If you're anything like me, you have a lot of questions about what happened in 2016 and what it means for this year. Why were the polls so far off? Which ones can we actually trust? And if polls can be so wrong about who's going to win the election, why should we even bother paying attention to them at all? To me, the real value of polls is understanding why Americans plan to vote the way they do. Well, you know, what issues are motivating them? I talked to Courtney Kennedy. She's the director of survey research at the Pew Research Center. And we started at the very beginning. Why do we even do polling in the first place? What pre-election polls are really good at is sort of answering those why questions. Are people reacting, you know, to the pandemic? Are they reacting to the economy? Are they reacting to the candidates themselves? They're not good at predicting, you know, what's going to happen weeks from now. Now, this is an important distinction. Polls definitely can help people understand why Americans vote the way they do. Like, for example, there are polls out there right now asking people about how the Supreme Court nomination will impact their vote. And that's the kind of thing that polls are good at. But as it turns out, they're actually terrible at the one thing we all want them to do, which is predict the outcome of the election. I wouldn't encourage people to look at, you know, battleground state polls Um, in competitive states and think that the polls are going to be able to call the winner in a razor-thin race. Like, that's just not a healthy or reasonable expectation, unfortunately, just because, you know, most of the state polls are not up to that task. But even still, in 2016, it felt like all the polls were saying one thing, that Hillary Clinton was going to be the clear winner. How could they all be so wrong? Here's how Courtney broke it down. There's really two stories to understanding what happened with polls in 2016. You know, the the polls, frankly, that matter for who's going to, you know, be in the White House are those state-level polls because we don't elect with a national vote. We elect with this series of state-level contests. And yes, uh, polls in those battleground states, especially in the upper Midwest, they were off. There was a systematic miss. 
But the other story of polling in 2016 is national polls. Um, And national polls, people forget, they actually did just fine. You know, nationally, they're like, well, the average was that, that Clinton was ahead in the national popular vote by three points, and she ended up winning the national popular vote by about two points. So nationally, there was nothing wrong with the polls, but there certainly was at the state level. And that, that is absolutely what mattered. So that's what people remember. In the aftermath of those state-level polling failures, Courtney actually served on a committee that studied those polls to figure out what exactly went wrong. So it wasn't just one thing. There were several factors that, that contributed to those polls underestimating support for Trump. One, there was a legit late break in support for Trump among undecided voters. So in places like Pennsylvania, Florida, Michigan, about 10 to 15 percent of voters tell us they didn't make up their mind until the final week. Those late deciders broke for Trump by 15, 20 percentage points in those battleground states. And so for polling, you know, if your poll was done in September and October, you were just in the field too early to catch that late movement. Uh, the other major thing that we found was that most polls in at the state level were not adjusting for a, a long-standing issue that pollsters have known about for a very long time, which is that certain groups in the population are, are more likely to take surveys than others. And one of those groups uh, is college graduates, people with, with more formal education. For whatever reason, they're more likely to pick up the phone, they're more likely to take a survey online. And normally that's not a huge problem, but in 2016, how much education a voter had was quite correlated with how they voted for president. So that's why they had, frankly, an overstatement of support for Clinton. And and what about this idea also of the silent majority, which is a term that President Trump uses, that there are people out there that won't say that they're voting for Donald Trump but they will vote for Donald Trump, meaning they might not tell a pollster. Do you think that, is that a real thing? It's, there's a grain of truth to it, but I think it's really overhyped. So, you know, do some people sometimes lie to pollsters? Sure. But if you look at all the studies that have been done, and there's actually quite a bit of work on that question about people lying to pollsters. I looked at five different tests and they each showed either no evidence to support that or just slight evidence. So when I look at all the work that was done, you know, could shy Trump silent majority phenomenon have contributed a little bit in 2016? I I think maybe, but a point or two at best. But it was not the major thing that went wrong. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. The other thing that complicates this idea of Trump's silent majority is that fewer and fewer polls are even done by live interviewers anymore. It used to be that pollsters did surveys over the phone, but like most things, polls have moved online in the last several years. And Courtney says that's how Pew Research Center, one of the most well-respected research centers in the country, does their polling these days. Part of what makes a good poll is making sure that you're surveying a group that actually represents all parts of the country. And moving polls online meant researchers had to figure out a new system to do that. So, and this makes the Luddite in me very happy, to make sure they get a good random sample, they begin the process with the post office. 
Many pollsters start with a master list of addresses from the U.S. Postal Service and contact people through the actual mail to ask them to fill out their online surveys. But it is important to note that some pollsters will still call people up, so you should not ignore your calls. Now, that's the first part, finding participants. The next question is what to ask them. Courtney says they try to keep the questions simple and neutral. Well, uh, first of all, I want to talk to you about a few issues that impact the United States of America. And do you approve or disapprove of the way Donald Trump is handling his job as president? Do you have a favorable opinion or unfavorable opinion of the Black Lives Matter movement? Which comes closest to your view about where the U.S. stands in the coronavirus outbreak? The worst is yet to come or the worst is behind us? Participants answer the questions. Then, when the pollsters get the data back, they have to figure out how to weight the answers. This step is crucial, and it's one of the key reasons why so many of those state polls in 2016 were pretty far off. As Courtney mentioned before, some people are just more likely to respond to surveys than others. College graduates, older Americans, white Americans, they all tend to respond to polls more often than other groups. So the raw data that a pollster gets is not usually reflective of the U.S. population. And that's where the weight of each answer comes in. Weighting is when the pollster takes their raw data, which is just the answers to those questions, and analyzes it to see what adjustments need to be made so that that poll can more accurately reflect the population. For example, in our raw data, we might have like 60% of interviews with women, but we know from census that that number should actually be like 52%, not 60%. So we can do some fairly simple math, frankly, to just um, weight down women so that they're in line with what they should be in the U.S. population. And we repeat that process for some other things like age to make sure that the young and the old are, are proportional to what they should be, race, ethnicity, education, geography, just on all those really important dimensions to make sure that the portrait in our poll lines up with the portrait of, of the population. So I want to talk about voter engagement and how it's related to the polls, because in 2016, there were people who saw the polls and they didn't want Donald Trump to win, but they saw that Hillary Clinton was so far ahead in some areas that they believed their vote wouldn't have mattered anyway. So they just didn't go to the polls. Is there some sort of chance that looking at these poll numbers could really impact an election? Yeah, that's a good question. So before 2016, I'd get asked that and I'd kind of blow it off because there wasn't good research or even strong theory that just seeing one poll result would change people's minds or their behavior. You know, we don't like to think as pollsters that we're, we're quite that important. But honestly, after 2016, I take that question very seriously. There has been one study that that did an experiment to evaluate how do people um, interpret and react to a poll result versus a probability statement. And by that, I mean, you know, in 2016, people saying, oh, Clinton's 99% likely to win, or she's 98% likely to win. That's, that's uh, one of those forecasts with the probability statement. And what this study found is that People don't tend to really overreact to polls, but if they hear that that statement of somebody's, you know, extremely likely to win, if they're 95% likely or 99% likely to win, that does seem to make some people less likely to vote. 
I, I hate to ask this because I know it's your life's work, but I am curious what you think. Um, do you think there's been long-term damage to the public trust in polls? And does that matter? Probably. Uh, that's, again, a really tough question to study. But, you know, just being someone who's talked to a lot of people in the public and, and, and journalists, like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hear it from everybody that people lost confidence and trust in polls after 2016. And, I, you know, I don't poo-poo it. I think it's a very understandable reaction. But what I try to do is clarify for people that while there were these mistakes in these state-level polls, um, that doesn't mean that the whole field is broken. So now that we know what polls can't do, predict the outcome of a close election, and what they can do, help us understand what Americans care about, we need to know how to tell a bad poll from a good one. To do that, we're going to talk to my colleague, Harry Enten. And a spoiler alert, he says that when I ask my Twitter followers what I should eat for lunch, I am not getting a quality poll. A Twitter poll, I'm sorry to say, is not a random sample and won't necessarily tell you what the American public thinks you should eat for lunch. We'll be back after this break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This November, we'll experience one of the most consequential elections of our lifetime. And with headlines changing every hour, you need a guide. Something to show you how all the stories fit together and why they matter. I'm David Chalian. And I'm Nia Malika Henderson. And each week on our new podcast, we'll help you tune out the noise and tune in to what's politically sound. Politically Sound, a new podcast from CNN. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now that we know more about what went wrong in 2016, I wanted to know how I should be reading the polls in the weeks leading up to this election. So I turned to my friend, Harry. I'm Harry Enten. I'm a senior political writer and analyst here at CNN. And I also very much enjoy the taste of fast food and diet soda. Now, this is one reason I like Harry, because like me, he enjoys the finer things. 
Harry is what they call a wizard of odds because he has made a career of breaking down the polls. So I asked him, should the average voter even bother paying attention to these polls? The average voter can do whatever the heck they want to do. I, I mean, I've never wanted to tell people what to do given my diet. But, you know, I would say that the average news consumer is very likely to pay attention to polling data. People like to know what's happening. The question is, what's the best way for them to consume it? And what's the best way for someone like myself or people in the news media to give off that data, to make people understand what's happening better? So if you do want to keep an eye on the polls, what should you be watching out for? I mean, three questions that I would ask right off the bat is, one, are there any other polls available from this state? Does this poll look like these other polls? If it doesn't, why doesn't it? You know, if it doesn't look like these other polls, then maybe I should be a little suspicious. Two, are the people who I trust in terms of consuming news, are they giving much credence to this poll result? Because if they're not, then there's a pretty good shot that this poll might have something funky with it. And then the third, if I'm being honest, is, you know, which is sort of an offshoot of number two is, who is this poll sponsored by? Is it a Democratic poll? Is it a Republican poll? Is it a nonpartisan poll? Because obviously the parties are going to want to try and pump out the numbers that are best for them. And if you are going to pay attention to it anyway, you probably want to say, you know what, the Democratic side, uh, if they're releasing this poll, it's probably better for them than the average would necessarily suggest. One big reason I was excited to talk to Harry was because I wanted him to break down some of the confusing terms we hear when we talk about polling, like sample size. That's the number of people who answered the questions in a poll. And Harry says that a good state poll includes no less than 350 to 400 people. For national polls, he told me he likes to see at least 600 people. Another thing I hear a lot when people talk about polls is the margin of error. So I asked him to explain that one too. It's essentially the idea that there, you know, if you're going to take a random sample of the population, then that will get you pretty close to the truth, right? Especially as your sample size goes up. So the smaller samples you have, the wider margins of error. And what all that means is that, look, if you find out that a candidate is at 45% and the margin of error is plus or minus three percentage points, that means 95% of the time they will be within three percentage points of 45. So they may be as high as 48 or they may be as low as 42. And if there's one thing I will be very clear and I think is so important for people to hear is the margin of error applies to both candidates. So when you hear that the margin of error is plus or minus three percentage points, the margin between the candidates is more like plus or minus six percentage points. Okay, so let's play a lightning round. There are all of these terms that have been thrown around, and I'm going to shout them out to you or just say them calmly, and you can give me one sentence or less on each one. Does that sound good? I'm going to try my best, but as you know, I'm verbose. Number one, entrance poll. Entrance poll is a poll that's taken in a caucus, figuring out why they're voting and who they're voting for and why they're voting for that candidate. What is an exit poll? An exit poll is the same idea as an entrance poll, but it's taken during a primary or general election in which voters are interviewed as they are leaving the polling places or if they're uh, voting absentee, you might receive a call in which the news organizations call up, say who you're voting for, why you're voting for that candidate. So that and now I see what he meant about being verbose. 
horse race. The horse race is basically the matchup between two candidates, Biden versus Trump. That's the horse race. What is a poll of polls? It's a fancy phrase for an average. It's just an average of polls. Tipping point state. A tipping point state, you'll hear me say it a lot. It is essentially the state in the Electoral College that contains the median vote um, in the Electoral College plus one. So it was Wisconsin in 2016, which was the state that helped put Donald Trump over the top of the Electoral College. Favorability rating. A favorability rating is just, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of a candidate or a cause? It's the same idea as an approval rating, except that you're not asking how you think if someone's doing their job well or not, because say like someone like Joe Biden, they don't have a current job in politics. You're just trying to get an understanding. Do folks like this person or dislike this person? Okay, that is fantastic. And I want to say you did a really excellent job with the lightning round. I think only a few of those were longer than a sentence, and partly that was my fault. Oh, thank you very much. You know, occasionally I do show some skill at some things. So to recap, when you're reading the polls, you want to look for big sample sizes. Stick to polls from a pollster or news outlet you trust, and remember that the margin of error really matters. And in these final weeks leading up to the election, don't forget, polls can tell you what voters are paying attention to, but not who's going to win the race. I'm Kristen Holmes, and next week on Election 101, we'll be talking about the vice presidential pick and why it matters. If you have any more questions about polling or anything about the election process, please send us an email at askelection101 at cnn.com or message me on Twitter at Kristen H. CNN. Some of you already have, and I'm loving hearing from you. And for an upcoming episode, we want you to answer our questions. We want to know how you figure out what a candidate stands for and whether or not they're aligned with your values. Do you read their platforms? Do you go to their events? Do you call their offices? What do you do to make sure you have all the information you need? Give us a call at 202-618-2517 and leave us a voicemail. Again, 202-618-2517. Or you can send us a voice memo at askelection101 at cnn.com and let us know. Election 101 is a production of CNN Audio and iHeartRadio. It's hosted by me, Kristen Holmes. This episode was produced by Jordan Bailey. It was mixed by Ben Shano. Meryl Aguish was our fact checker. Haley Thomas is the senior news producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Additional support for the show comes from Greta Cohn, Lacey Roberts, Sarah Nix, Ashley Lusk, Lindsay Abrams, and Lisa Namaro. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.